What if you were born with a disease that you always knew would kill you? And then what if all of a sudden you were given a second chance? Well, that's exactly what happened to me. And it's the question that we explore on the new podcast series, Breathless from Snack Labs. Join me, Jeremy Saunders, for a series that explores what it means to live and die, to love and to lose, and what it's like to have your whole life turned upside down and the unexpected challenges that come with a life-saving drug. You can listen to Breathless now, wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everybody. It's both of us. It's both of us. <laughs> We're here together to introduce you to this week's guest, Matthew Remsky, an old friend of ours, actually. Yeah. Matthew Remsky is a um, longtime meditator and yoga practitioner, and he facilitates programming for yoga trainings, including yoga philosophy, which is how we were introduced to Matthew. Um, he is also the author of eight books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. That's a lot of books. It's more books than I've ever written. It's more books than I've maybe ever read. <laughs> um, perhaps most interestingly for our listeners to hear, uh, Matthew is a cult survivor, and he is also a podcaster, a uh, host of the podcast Conspirituality. Great podcast. Yeah, it's a, it's in their words, in their description, a weekly study of converging right-wing conspiracy theories and faux progressive wellness utopianism. Hmm. Right up our alley. Yeah. We like that kind of stuff. We were really excited to sit down with Matthew. What a dream guest. We talked about some really fascinating things from his very brilliant mind, so we're excited for you to hear it. Yeah. No uh, no word of a lie. Might be one of my favorite podcast recordings I've ever had over the last six years of doing this as a career. And just knowing Matthew, too, it's like scratching the surface yeah. of yeah. what 
we could get into. Yeah. So buckle up. Some mind-bending stuff coming your way. Hope you enjoy it. And as always, we'll see you on the other side. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's dive right into it. This is going to be really fun. Um, we're speaking with Matthew Remsky, uh, someone that we've met. I, I mean, I feel like it's been ages ago. Our cro- yeah. our paths crossed in the right. in the yoga world um, all the way back when Bridie was uh, uh, very heavily involved in the Moksha community or now Moto community, uh, running the teacher facilitating facilitating the teacher trainings. And uh, we right before we started recording, Matthew, we were talking about how you you treated me, you gave me an Ayurvedic treatment, right. and I I it was so long ago. I have I have the worst memory ever. But the one thing I do remember was you were like, you were like, anything that's an expectorant is very important for you. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, one of the things, one of the things that you said was a okay was scotch. And I was like, well, <laughs> Noted. well if he said I can do it, <laughs> right. uh, um, but, uh, we're really excited to have you on the podcast, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the work that you do, Matthew, um, uh, maybe just fill fill our listeners in. Tell us about um, tell us about the you know the world of writing that you seem to be very involved in. Uh, tell us about Conspirituality, the podcast that you're also a part of. Right. Yeah. Um, so after maybe twelve years of gig work, but also studio ownership in the yoga world, and getting into the position where I was facilitating. Um, you know, teacher training program segments in yoga philosophy and, you know, the history of Ayurveda and things like that. Um, I started to turn my attention to the social dynamics of yoga communities and Buddhist communities and wellness spaces. Um, And so uh, around 2012 or so, um, the news broke that, a former um, fellow student of mine uh, in an organization called Diamond Mountain Institute in Arizona had died. His name was Ian Thorson. And when I looked at the news reports, uh, it said that he had actually died of malnutrition and dehydration in the Arizona desert outside of the retreat boundaries of our my former teacher slash cult leader. Uh, His name is Michael Roach. He's still doing his thing, by the way. Uh, And I kind of dove into this this guerrilla investigative journalism to try to figure out what had happened to this person that I had known. Um, I wrote a series of articles about that. And that kind of changed my position within the wellness world uh, to that of cultural critic, which is not, you know, the best way of making a living, but um, (laughs) it started to get a little bit more serious when I got some, you know, real assignments from the Walrus magazine to cover things like um, the uh, abuse within Ashtanga Yoga, founded Mm. by Patabi Joyce. And then also, uh, I did a long piece uh, about Shambhala Buddhism. So, um, Really, uh, the Conspirituality podcast has come out of 
the last maybe six or seven years of, of work as a journalist at the edges of the wellness world, looking at toxic social dynamics and, and uh, cults. Um, and, and, you know, when the pandemic exploded in the spring of 2020, um, what we began to see, my colleagues and I, uh, just on a daily basis, was the same charismatic figures within mm. wellness, yoga, and Buddhist spaces beginning to capitalize upon this massive social crisis to present their content as though it was going to save the world. So um, these were dynamics that that we were familiar with, and we started to report them out. Mm. Can you can you just lay out the the meaning of the word conspirituality? Yeah. So. Um, it was first defined by two academics, uh, David Voas, who's a professor of uh, the sociology of religion, uh, and Charlotte Ward, who's kind of an independent researcher in England, uh, in an essay in 2011 called The Emergence of Conspirituality. And I'll send the link to you for the full paper, but uh, and your listeners can take a look at it. You, all you have to do is read the abstract, which I've read so many times, I think I can probably, I've probably got by heart, which is something <laughs> like, um, you know, typically we think of the worlds of right-wing conspiracy theories and new age spirituality as being politically and culturally opposed. But we see, and we'll go on to show that they are interweaving in some interesting ways. Uh, and we're going to call that conspirituality. And they basically paint this picture of uh, a dovetailing of, you know, uh, male-oriented, politicized political paranoia um, and the New Age promise of spiritual transcendence and renewal mainly marketed towards and by female influencers uh, and so there's this gender dynamic within conspirituality that is sort of, you know, mutually supportive, but also, um, uh, you know, quite, uh, uh, I would say, charged, uh, mm. where the, the, the cynicism of everything is going wrong is really, um, you know, mitigated and, and comforted and nurtured by you know, the divine feminine promise that all is unfolding as it should. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that is all very abstract. I'm kind of quoting from the abstract of, of the paper, but, you know, the a really clear example would be that, you know, within days of the WHO announcing the COVID-19 pandemic or describing it as a pandemic, uh, there's... Uh, an influencer that we cover called Kelly Brogan, who works as a, or she used to work in Manhattan in a very swanky holistic psychiatry practice um, where her specialty was helping people naturally withdraw from psychotropic medications uh, through, you know, holistic practices and, and Kundalini yoga. Mm. So whether or not that was successful is a whole other sort of topic. But um, what's important about Kelly Brogan is that, she uh, very persuasively, as far as her followers uh, went or, or felt, laid out this case that uh, the pandemic was an organized and, you know, conspiracy-driven 
phenomenon that was uh, purposed for, you know, state control over people's bodies, but that the fact that it was accelerating or, and that, and that, you know, oppression was rising and she made references to, you know, you know, we're seeing the same kind of, you know, dehumanization measures that preceded the Holocaust. So Mm -hmm. that was right back there. But part of her promise was that, you know, all of this social strife is actually an indication that, you know, it's the time for us to spiritually transform and to adopt a new vision of world oneness and to recognize our inner divinity and how that that was how how that was going to save everything. Um, So uh, whenever I would just say to the listeners that that whenever you have uh, somebody in uh, new age, spirituality, wellness, alt health zones, who um, makes grand declarative statements about how horrible a particular social situation is, or how deceived everyone is, is by their governments or by the medical industrial complex or however they phrase it. But then at the same time, they promise a kind of pathway towards spiritual salvation. Hmm. You're, you're hitting on conspirituality. That's what that is. Right, right. And why is it so seductive? Like, why are, like, because I feel, you know, I've never been alive at a time that's felt more divisive. And when I look at the people, you know, before this this phase of life, I remember the big thing being like, watch out for your echo chamber. Like, you know, you're only surrounding people with people who say the same things as you. And now I look at like my Facebook feed or, you know, and I'm, and I'm like kind of shocked at who's, Mm. who's gone that way. And, and I don't, none of them are like very significant relationships in my life. So I don't feel like, Oh, how am I going to bridge this gap? How am I going to get this? How am I going to quote unquote, like save this person um, or get my relationship, you know, back. But, but you're seeing enough people within your relative social circle that, mm-hmm. you know, that there's people that, you know, that very much are in that position and are going, in relationships yeah. like romantic relationships, mm-hmm. people who, right. who have all of a sudden, and it's, it, it's just like, what, it, what are the qualities that, 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 that contribute to that buy-in? Yeah. So I think conspirituality is extremely compelling for a number of interlocking reasons. Uh, some of them are political economic and they have to do with, you know, intense uh, situational pressures like the pandemic. And then some of them are more deeply ingrained with the kind of training that uh, the yoga Buddhist wellness industry subliminally offers its students and not without good results over many years. So let me just start there. Um, if you spent a number of years getting good results from your yoga practice, you probably ran into an interlocking set of three, I don't know, axioms or perhaps um, faith faith statements. And the three would be something like, uh, nothing is really as it seems. Um, secondly, uh, everything is connected. And thirdly, 
um, everything happens for a purpose. And so these are very kind of compelling, uh, nurturing, pro-social even axioms by which people can, you know, change their perspective on a situation that looks Mm. like it might be, um, you know, uh, negative, or it might lift their cynicism, it might give them a sense of, well, you know, it really does make sense for me to work in small ways at this, you know, very big problem towards, you know, one goal at a time. Uh, maybe it really does uh, make sense that my actions in this part of my life will impact, you know, uh, realities in another part of my life. And so these are like really hopeful axioms. And they also, according to the political scientist My- Michael Barkun, are also the three pillars of conspiratorial thinking. Mm. Uh, nothing is as it seems. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, you you think that uh, the Obamas are, you know, neoliberal middle managers, but actually, you know, they're both drinking blood in the basement with Hillary Clinton. Um, Everything is connected, you know, well, when uh, Trump says uh, tippy top shape, he's actually sending a secret code to Mm -hmm. the, you know, anti deep state operatives and so on. Uh, And that everything happens for a reason um, allows for, you know, influencers who are using the tools of QAnon, for example, to always uh, suggest that some sort of prediction is coming true so that the story will round up in some kind of pleasing way. And that's the other thing that's compelling, which is that um, conspirituality offers stories that end. Uh, they offer, it offers um, the notion of, you know, personal freedom in very vaguely defined but quite triumphant terms. Uh, it offers the notion of enlightenment. It offers the the vision of you know the utopian society in which everybody is you know uh, medically self sovereign or whatever. Uh, it offers very compelling visions of uh, society that are not this kind of like patchwork of micromanaged solutions that, that, you know, we are used to in our very highly surveilled and organized lives. So, um, you know, it's, I would say that conspirituality is also really compelling because, you know, situationally, uh, everybody who is working in wellness spaces or was, were heavy consumers in those in wellness spaces we're suddenly locked up at home in the spring of 2020. And Mm. the only thing that they had access to that looked like their wellness world was through the screen. And suddenly um, the, the real estate of, uh, you know, cultural value was super, super expensive and super uh, competitive. And so it made sense for, wellness influencers to begin to compete for eyeballs Mm. by pushing the boundaries of their content for reaching for things that were provocative. And so we saw all kinds of people starting to use language that sounded like it was warning followers away from, you know, the agendas of the deep state or, you know, that, that, um, 
you know, even even subtle expressions of doubt in you know, what public health officials are saying about the pandemic, take on this conspiratorial tone that is actually transgressive, and therefore it's a little bit sexy. And then, you know, QAnon itself has this entire, like, sadomasochistic <laughs> imaginarium that is running underneath it that I think is extremely attractive in, you know, the same way that that va- vampire fiction is. And so, you know, what this means is that also that I think there were a lot of people in the wellness world that started sharing conspirituality and then QAnon related content, not necessarily because they understood it or because they even bought off on it, but because it felt charged and yeah. it felt compelling and it felt, you know, topical and it felt urgent. And, and this is why when, you know, I did this big piece for the walrus uh, magazine on, you know, it was called when QAnon came to Canada and, you know, I looked at top influencers like Daniel Laporte um, and uh, you know, people who had hundreds of thousands of followers. And then I also looked at very small time influencers in the yoga world who might have gone through four or five months of posting save the children memes or whatever. Uh, and then they, and then they stopped, but they also like built audiences through that. Mm. But the thing is, is that when I reached out to them and I said, so what did that mean to you? Nobody wanted to talk about it because I think at a certain point, uh, there were a lot of people that kind of got hooked into that content stream that then had to disclaim it because they realized it was going somewhere really toxic. So I, I, you know, with all the, with all the research that you've done into this world, especially over the last, you know, couple of years um, with the Trump administration and, and everything that's happened with COVID and just like this uprise and QAnon and all this wild stuff. Um, if there, have you put much thought into the ways in which someone who is close to somebody who has seemingly been swept up and fell into this rabbit hole, like effective ways in trying to communicate to that person to kind of bring them back to reality. You know, cause like when I, I, I don't uh, like Bridie, like I don't know anyone super directly that has, bought into this stuff so deeply that like, you know, they just seem like a, a, a lost cause, but I can imagine, I can imagine myself in that scenario. And in imagining that it feels very daunting. The, the thought of trying to, trying to communicate to someone who is so deeply swept up in all of this. Do you, yeah. do you have like tips or, or, you know, I, suggestions? I do. I, I do. All of them are works in progress, but it's something that we kind mm. of obsess about because it's a, like it's probably the most important question of all. Um, and you know, I am a cult survivor, and that's how what got me into cult research. And I start answering that question from the perspective of. Um, I'm not saying that that you know being involved in 
online conspirituality movements is necessarily cult-like, but there are some similarities, and mm. definitely people have compared QAnon to to a, a cultic organization, although there's no leader and there's a whole bunch of complications there. But um, one axiom in cult recovery is that there are three groups of people that are super important for the person who's trying to find their bearings again. Um, one group of people uh, is those who have been in the same group that you've been in, but they've left. Uh, if you can talk, if you can talk to them, if you have any access to them, that's fantastic because they'll know what your values are and they'll know why you found this thing so attractive. And they'll also have some insight into how it probably didn't serve your needs. Uh, the second group is, you know, members of any similar group that have also left. Uh, and this really operates on the, the principle of, you know, the, the, the tendency to believe in one conspiracy theory is predictive of uh, the tendency to believe in two or several. And so there's a lot of people, there's a, for example, there's a lot of people who used to be 9-11 truthers who are doing like on the ground work, trying to help ex-QAnon people try to figure out what happened to them, mm. right? So people who believed that 9-11 was an inside job, people who believed earnestly that the World Trade Center uh, Building 7 was, you know, brought down hours later in a controlled demolition and not through fire damage, uh, you know, people who who believed that vigorously for years um, and then just graduated out of it when they saw better evidence, uh, they are very effective at talking to the person who is convinced that, you know, QAnon is some kind of coherent uh, philosophy. Uh, and then the third group of people, and this is, I think, most important and probably most accessible for uh, your listeners and the general public is, you know, the people who knew you before you got involved mm. are really important because they can remember what you valued before. Uh, they can say, you can remember going to high school with them. Uh, you can remember, you know, uh, your, your, you know, previous social groups. You can remember what the person used to do for, for work or for fun. Uh, you know where you used to like to go for walks. And this all boils down to if your friend has been caught up in, you know, a toxic ideology that seems to be, you know, counterfactual and addictive and, um, uh, and 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 perhaps even dangerous to them if they wind up being anti-vaxxers, uh, then you know what's most important is that you seek to preserve your relationship with them because the security of the friendship is something that this new group will not offer them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it can't because it's it generally these are um, very. Um, uh, uh, you know, th thin, thinly socially connected, but ideologically extreme and shrill uh, kind of um, uh, sociologies that don't really provide stability in relationship or friendship. And so if you really do have social capital with somebody, um, the number one priority is to maintain uh, the friendship beyond the issue that you're actually worried about. Mm. Um, and, and then when you're, 
talking with them, you know, the last thing that you want to do is make them feel like they're stupid because for two reasons, first of all, um, the, the, that's how they got recruited into the ideology was by somebody very forcefully telling them that they were ignorant about something and offering them some sort of, you know, new revelation or view on life. Um, So you you can't really get them out of that by replicating that dynamic. Um, And then secondly, you don't call them stupid because whatever they've done, it makes sense in some way. Um, You know, the thing about uh, people who are very seduced by the promises of, spirituality uh, or who are really uh, seduced by um, the, the, the arguments of the anti-vax movement, they have good reasons to be afraid of, you know, uh, medical care. They have really good reasons to be afraid of, you know, violations of their agency. Um, they're right about a lot of things. They know that we live in very imperfect societies that are rife with inequality and institutional abuse. And so, you know, I think all of that has to be accepted and validated to the point where perhaps the person can see that whatever solution they've been sold by the influencer doesn't really answer their core question. Turn Me On Podcast will be back after this short break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
for the influencer, so we've had a couple of questions come in from listeners about, you know, how do you handle particular sets of like ethical situations in the yoga room? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've just gotten into massage school and I am, we're talking about ethics and, and, and it's very philosophical and, and not always clear, but it does seem like in the yoga world, very often these teachers, whether or not they um, intend to take advantage of these roles of teacher-student like on a pedestal, it it seems to happen so frequently. And these people like started out wanting to deliver and help and care for people. Where does that like happen? Where does that schism sort of go off the rails? Yeah. I mean, um, let me, let me, let me go backwards towards that question through the influencer problem and conspirituality. Uh, everybody that we've covered on the podcast weaponizes a kind of charisma because that's the only real currency that exists in unregulated professions, right? So, you know, if you are a uh, Reiki master uh, or you are, you have learned a meditation technique or you have been initiated so that you ostensibly have permission to teach some sort of tantric philosophy. There are no sort of, there's no peer review. There's no uh, like process of the vetting of the quality of your programming. Um, There's no way of measuring how, good your yoga is and how Mm. beneficial it is for anybody Mm. else um we're really in in most wellness areas we are in the land of the charismatic economy where the person who for some reason is able to make the the biggest the richest the loudest impression upon the most number of people and create a kind of social dynamic feedback loop that just propels them into, uh, you know, a kind of fame. That's how the economy works. You, you, you don't become a good yoga teacher by, by understanding or attaining some sort of objective, you know, measurable level of knowledge in yoga philosophy. That's just not how it works. And it doesn't happen in any other regulated uh, spirituality, unregulated spirituality or wellness, um, uh, you know, tradition. And so if, if your, your basic question, Bridie, if I understand it is, you know, why do the power dynamics always go south? And I would say that if the baseline economy favors charisma over, you know, uh, credentials and accountability, yeah. then you're, you're already starting off in a really dangerous territory. And, you know, people who gain social capital within these spaces 
uh, do so, whether they know it or not, by just becoming larger than life, by becoming larger than the people who they are teaching, instead of, you know, fellow citizens with rights and responsibilities and, you know, a college that can, you know, disbar them if they fuck up. So, um, yeah, why does it, why, why is it, why is it toxic? I also think that because we're talking about unregulated industries, it's just the, the whole space is going to self-select for people who can't necessarily complete, um, you know, uh, regimes of education that are, you know, frankly, more, uh, boundaried and, and, uh, and disciplined, right. You know, it's like, um, in, I, I remember, I remember, um, we were speaking of Ayurveda earlier. I remember a medical doctor in India telling me that, um, you know, Ayurvedic practitioners who, who graduated from, uh, the BAMS degree, which is kind of like the biomedicine equivalent of, of, of an Ayurvedic training. Um, the, the students that got into that stream were the ones who weren't, who, whose marks weren't good enough to get into medical school. <laughs> uh, and so, so I think that, uh, you know, yoga and wellness spaces are populated by people who either don't want to uh, discipline themselves into, uh, you know, a really sort of peer oriented professionalization, or they can't, or it doesn't occur to them that that's what they should do. And and also, I don't know if you've noticed, but like, there's a heck of a lot of uh, people who wind up being really good yoga teachers on the strength of them being excellent performers using yeah. skills that they learned in the entertainment industry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that I like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but uh, I was really great at Ryerson theater school and I'm not going <laughs> to lie. That really did help me in the, in the hot room when I was teaching yoga, like especially my, because you didn't really like teaching. I fucking hated teaching, but you just were good at I it. I was good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, to, to this, to this point, and this, this might be veering a little bit like outside the realm of, of what you're comfortable talking with, but, but maybe not, but this, this idea of like charisma being attached to these sorts of people that, that seem to gain a lot of success. It, it, it's making me think about, um, about how like sex is often like weaponized, uh, among these like charismatic leaders. You know, I think about like, like the David Koresh of uh, Koresh's of the world or like the Keith Raniere's, and it, like anybody, anybody who's been a cult leader, it always seems like sex is somehow involved. Some sort of like sexual abuse is like, like top tier, a part of the, the, the intricate sort of machinery that, that makes that entire thing run. But there seems to be a lot of similarities in the, in the yoga community, like, you know, Bikram Chowdhury for one example um, very charismatic, very problematic. Uh, you know, like a lot of a lot of sexual abuse over the years. Yeah, a rapist, right? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. And so, like, is that is, is that tied in directly to this like this charisma that that you speak of? It, I mean, do those two things go hand in hand? Like, where, where does how does sexual abuse play a role in in cult dynamics? Well, I mean the educated rape culture answer to that is that sexual abuse is an expression of power 
that sexual abuse itself is never really about sexuality. Uh, and that, as you say, it's kind of a, a weaponization of the you know closest, dearest, most intimate parts of ourselves towards facilitating an increasing power differential. Um, I mean, it, I think that the cult studies answer is kind of interesting in terms of the role of sexual abuse. The person who wants to maintain social control over, uh, you know, an increasingly devoted population is going to be really benefited to the extent that they meddle in the members' sexual lives. And that can take a lot of different forms. Um, it can take the form of direct assault, uh, which then might be rationalized by the members as a kind of special contact with the holy leader. Mm. Um, or it can come in the form of rules where the uh, the leader and the group decide that, okay, nobody is going to have sexual intimacy with anybody else in this group. Um, and the reasoning there is, or the, the social control mechanism there is that, you know, sexuality and intimacy will be one of the ways in which people form, you know, bonds with, you know, whether they're pair bonds or, or in greater numbers that will actually compete against the authority mm -hmm. of the leadership. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another way of doing that is for the leader to demand that everybody has sex with everybody else all the time, specifically that pair bonds get broken up, uh, that, you know, people are, are, you know, divorced and married randomly to each other. Uh, and this also scrambles the capacity for the members to form secure attachments that would actually challenge the uh, bonds that they 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 are supposed to have with the leader mm. and so um yeah sex is weaponized because i think it uh is just extremely powerful with regard to uh whether or not uh human beings either alone or in pairs or in threes or fours are able to uh, actually create their own sources of meaning and connection with each other mm. uh, because the group doesn't want that to happen. Mm. When it comes to um, uh, like rehabilitation for folks that have been sucked up into a cult or some sort of community that, that um, obviously has done like a lot of harm and this person is now out of the, you know, that they've been released of the, the, the hooks that were within them. What, what exists for resources for folks that are, that are trying to like deprogram or, or, or rehabilitate after something that can be so traumatic and, and so, you know, that can last for so many years. Like what, 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 what are, are there, are there like specific networks that exist for people to reach out to? Yeah, I mean, the online world has, uh, you know, melted our brains in some ways and and provided a lot of um, connective resources in others. And I would say that some of the most positive um, survivor support networks that I've encountered in the journalism that I've done on, on cults 
have emerged in Facebook groups. There's there's one in particular that's that's pretty extraordinary. It's called Satya, uh, and it's a Facebook group that's run on behalf of uh, former members of Shivananda Yoga. So this is another organization that I did I did a big investigation on, um, because it you know has a history of intergenerational abuse, uh, and they were able to get this. They they were able to not only platform and uh, and 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 amplify the voices of survivors in the group, but they were also able to crowdfund and hire uh, a set of independent investigators on their own uh, to take and corroborate the testimonies of the organization's survivors and then publish publish those results uh, along with all of the all of the evidence you know this is it wasn't it wasn't there was a there was a retired lawyer on this team but you know often when you know an institution is confronted with with accusations of widespread spread abuse they'll hire you know a third party investigative you know legal team to you know do interviews and so on well these are members of Shivananda Yoga, people who went to trainings there, people who got their teaching certificates there, who got together, put together something like twenty or thirty thousand uh, dollars to pay for this team to do six months of research uh, to produce this really professional report that said, "Yep, all of these things actually happened," mm-hmm. uh, and you know, what are you going to do about it? It's kind of an extraordinary story, mm-hmm. um, but you know, more 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 generally uh, and sort of less. Um, I said, I, I guess, less localized. There are enormous networks uh, now that serve people who are either trying to get out of the QAnon fever dream or their family members. There's a there's a subreddit called QAnon Casualties that I think has something like a quarter of a million members. Oh, wow. uh, and when I interviewed, you know, just last year when I interviewed the um, the one of the moderators for it, Mike Rains, it was only at 60,000 members. So this has just exploded. Mm. Um, psychotherapeutic resources are um, available, but they're hard to come by because uh, it's not, as far as I know, a distinct topic of study in the in the the colleges that that issue the main certifications i think that Mm. you know there are psychotherapists that can go on to do a specialization in you know the cult literature but um you know i I do this i do this pretty much for a living and i really only know about four therapists who are specifically trained and experienced in Uh. what it means to come out of a cult and what the process is there. God, I, um, I wonder if that's going to change, you know, like, I think like it's going to have to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Over the, over the coming like decade, I feel like that's something that's really like, really there's going to be a need for it. For it. Yeah. Because the thing, the thing is, is that, um, you know, I, 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 I live, I live in a family of psychodynamic psychotherapists. I'm not one myself, but I know enough about the discipline to know that, um, you know, when a person comes to therapeutic in search of therapy, uh, there are whole sectors of the discipline that are oriented towards very carefully 
listening and building relationship towards modeling better relationship and security, but not necessarily counseling, not necessarily providing educational resources, not intervening in a way to say, hey, well, you know, it sounds like you were in a cult. Uh, here are some really good books for you to read. And that's its own skill. Um, and and so the people that I refer, you know, I, I get I get hundreds of emails from people coming out of cults. And, uh, you know, I refer them to these very busy four therapists who are specifically trained in this. But I think you're right, Jeremy, that uh, there are whole sectors of, of psychotherapeutic practice that, um, you know, will be encountering more and more clients with these specific histories uh, and, and may want to have, uh, you know, more counseling tools on hand. Well, I, I, that brings up for me, you know, this, this generation of like children Mm. or any, I guess any, any child that's been raised within a cult system or in a conspiracy, conspiracy, uh, perpetuating household Mm. and the difference between that experience developmentally compared to an adult who had like a previous life and previous relationships and things that can anchor them back Mm-hmm. help anchor them back into reality. And I, I wonder if, Matthew, if you know of any sort of examples or, or or what that process is in terms of children in these dynamics. Hashtag save the children, Bridie. That's, oh, right. That's, yeah. that's oh, it. And we right got there. that email early on because we, we did, uh, we did have a conversation um, with someone uh, about, about the, the, um, about pedophilia in regards to what is actually happening in the brain developmentally in utero as a as a a theory of like where this pedophilia comes from and we, we got we got emails of like I few. can't believe you're putting this yeah, out there yeah, we when we're when save the children is like, anyway yeah. it was just a really bizarre situation but anyway yeah that sounds that sounds that sounds confusing um yeah. <laughs> so so you're absolutely right that the person who was born into the cultic environment does not have prior resources like that is their world. The person who has made the best study of that is uh, Yanya Lalich, who has a fantastic book called Escaping Utopia, where she has um, case studies of about 60 young adults, some of them might still be teenagers, some of them are older adults, but they all tell stories of how they came out of high demand groups that they were born into. And, you know, these are, these are kids that were brought up in, in, um, you know, uh, fringe Mormon groups or in uh, yoga groups, all kinds of groups. So it's sort of cross-cultural in that way. And, um, what she focuses on that I find really fascinating and kind of beautiful and inspiring is that um, all of the kids, uh, in order to survive uh, in environments that they don't even really understand as being abusive, um, m- many of them invent alternative worlds as though they were having a normal childhood somewhere. Mm. 
they might find an activity that they absorb themselves in, you know, uh, obsessively. They might find a special place that they go to. They might create a story in their heads about a different world that they're actually living in, or that a part of them is living in. Uh, and and Lalich shows how it's often on the strength of these stories that there's this sense of a possible other world beyond the sort of strict rules and social controls that that they've grown up with. So uh, that's really cool. There's and and it's a very important uh, field because with um, you know modern yoga and Buddhist uh, wellness cults, we're heading into for some of them third generations. You know, when I was doing the uh, investigative work on Shambhala International, we're talking mm. about three three generations now, uh, and uh, some of the second generation kids, um, they, they feel as though they literally grew up in the kingdom of Shambhala, where you know the 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 flags that Trungpa designed were actually the flags of their country and where, um, you know, they, they actually spent Shambhala money and, you know, they went to Shambhala kindergartens. They lived, they had Shambhala passports for fuck's sake. Uh, they lived in a, just a different world entirely. Uh, and how extraordinary for them to have that world crack apart sort of like it does on the Truman show uh, mm. and for them to realize that, Oh, uh, somebody very ill was at the center of this. And uh, a lot of people knew about it, including perhaps my parents. Uh, and I wasn't really protected from it mm. and uh, very, very difficult road to recovery. And some of the bravest people that I know actually are, are those who have, have had to claw their way out of that situation. Mm. It must be so hard to trust your interpretation of what's going on mm. in the world when you are raised in like a reality. Because one of the things you said about cre kids have these activities or these places that they go to where they live a different life, it almost seems like they're disassociating from what's been presented as real. Yeah, and I don't know whether there's a technical term for like um uh nurturing or generative dissociation <laughs> right. uh but but it sounds like it sounds like that's what it is is though the 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 child is realizes that there's something flat and impossible about the world in which they are trapped and like i don't know opening harry potter or something like that uh, there's there's the chance to um, visualize oneself as mm -hmm. as um, you know being being able to fly and play Quidditch and, uh, and 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 understand who dragons are and what Hagrid is doing and so on. Um, so yeah, I, I don't yeah as I said I don't know if there's a if there's a positive form of I mean I guess we would just call it imagination, right. but but it's a but it's a through line through those stories. And uh, I just find it very, very powerful. Well, Matthew, I got to say, this is uh, this conversation has been absolutely incredible, so eye-opening. So, so glad that you took time out of your busy schedule to sit down and and have a conversation with us and and our listeners. 
Um, thank you so much. Let our, let our listeners know how they can keep up with the work that you do, uh, where they can find the podcast, where they can find your writing. Yeah, Conspirituality Podcast is available on all of your regular podcast servers. And uh, I can be found on Medium, just under my name, Matthew Remsky. Uh, and I have a website, MatthewRemsky.com. Uh, t- Twitter, same. It's just my name. And and Facebook. I think also uh, listeners might find our Instagram page interesting. It's Conspirituality Pod on Instagram. So, yeah, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, this we'll has been be really sure great. to link all of those in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. I yeah. yeah, I echo Jeremy's sentiments. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Well, how about that recording? I am always so just like, I just feel like I'm, I was going to give a really bad analogy there of, of, you know, that image of like, just, just trying to like collect all the things that are being fired at you at once. And like, like a goaltender, I guess with like just tons of soccer balls flying at them. What were you originally going to say? I don't think I can say it. A bunch of dicks? No. No, you could. Uh, I was gonna talk about Jackie Kennedy trying to collect John F. Kennedy's skull. Oh my God, <laughs> Jesus Christ! I know. That's why I didn't want to fucking say it. Wait, why did that come to your mind? Um, that is such a visceral and intense vision. I listen to a lot of morbid, morbid shit, and also. Um, at school when things get really stressful, I just try to remember that we're all going to die. And especially when they put cadavers up, there are some people who are just like too squeamish to even look at like a dead hand with no skin on it. And today I had a conversation with some of my fellow students about, about like, yeah, well not that bad because we're all going to die. Like it's, it's very temporary, all of this. Um, and so God, my I, brain immediately goes to the most morbid images because they're in my head. They're just, they're very, they're in my prefrontal cortex. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that video is pretty wild. Seeing his skull explode all over her. Yeah. And, on the back of and that she's just trying Cadillac. to gather all the pieces of it yeah. together. That's how I feel when yeah. Matthew Remsky is speaking. I'm like, wait a second, I can't, do we go in that direction? Do we go in this direction? Like, where do we go? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really fun to just watch him go you know, to listen to him go. He's, he's just so, he's so compelling. As we mentioned in the, uh, in the introduction of the episode, and maybe we even mentioned it in the conversation. I can't remember that we know Matthew from yoga teacher trainings Yes, where he's the deliverer of the most difficult material to deliver at a yoga training. Yeah. Unless you're really into philosophy. Yeah. Uh, it's, they're so, the concepts are just so mind bending. Yeah. And he, his vocabulary is so extensive. Very and rich vocabulary. Precise. Yeah. That. I feel so stupid when I talk to people like Matthew. But then you went in and, cause he's also an, I didn't say this in the intro, but an Ayurvedic consultant. Yes. And when you go into those, and even on our recording, into those very interpersonal, interpersonal moments. Yeah. He's very accessible. Oh, he's very right. He's very much right there with you. Yeah. But like he'll say things and I go like and I'll catch like, myself <laughs> I'll catch myself going 
I'll catch myself getting lost for a second because I go, wow, that word he just used was so eloquent. And he used it in this moment, in this context. And I wonder if I can start using that word in my everyday vocabulary. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, fuck. What was the last thing you said for the last two minutes? Because all I've been thinking about was how the to way integrate that you this used- word. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty par for the course because we're both word lovers and, and we have an education in yeah. appreciating words. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I really admire, I admire anybody who's dug really deep and, into the things yeah, and that he has they're dug doing. Very deep. Indeed. Um, yeah. So very excited about that recording, that conversation. It just fucking, it, again, it just blew my mind. We'd love to hear your thoughts too. Please uh, turn me on podcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on that conversation. What came up for you? We'd love to hear from you. Um, Any little, follow-up questions? A little side note. Uh, he mentioned a woman, uh, Yanya. Um, I forget Yanya's last name now. It's escaping me, but uh, she wrote Escaping Utopia, which is the book about deprogramming children that were born into cults. Um, I just booked her today for Sick Boy. <gasps> Wow, yeah. listeners of Turn Me On, if you haven't yeah. checked out uh, Sick Boy Podcast, yeah, Jeremy's other podcast, you should definitely so, hop on over so there. So excited for that conversation. So um, anyway, thank you, Matthew, for giving us your time. Fucking love that conversation. And we'll we'll be going back to listen uh, time and time again. Um, you've, you, uh, you sound sick. Yeah, I got a cold. I got tested yesterday. It's not COVID, but Todd is sick. His... His employees, or not his employees, but his co-workers are sick, and yeah. it was just a given. But it feels weird. I definitely haven't been sick in a long time, and I'm kind of bummed out about it. I know, right? Yeah. 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 It's it, not- it, it, when it hits you, it's like, oh, oh, I haven't felt this in forever. Oh. Yeah. But again, we're all going to die. So That's right. It's not that. Not yet. Not yet. Um, uh, where was I going to go with that? Oh, uh, you were also talking about uh, school. Yeah. And I just wanted to bring this up. Uh, the other day, Leah and myself went over to your house and you were you asked us to come over so that you could do some practicing, um, palpating and like locating certain muscle groups. And man, I was really blown away. Yeah. You've only been in school for a month. Yeah. And you were rifling off yeah. terms. Like your brain is just full. I mean, to speak about, you know, talk about uh, a full vocabulary. Yeah. It was, I was really impressed. Good job, babe. Thanks. Yeah. I feel almost a little bit like guilty about not like, I wouldn't say this is coming so easily to me compared to everybody else, but you know, we started with things that I was sort of familiar with. So that boosted my confidence, you know, talking about like, oh yeah, the trapezius and the latissimus and whatever, et cetera. But like today we learned how to palpate, which means like feel with your fingers. Um, the different muscles in the forearm that do extension of the, of the wrist. So like when you, when you pull your fingers, your fingers back towards your face, that's extension. If you, if you put your hand in the opposite direction, that's flexion. And basically in the forearm, you have an anterior, uh, you have an anterior compartment of muscles, a posterior compartment of muscles. And so when you flex and extend your hand, all of that's coming from basically your elbow. Right. Which just is like, like it's Spider-Man, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, whew. and the words are so fun to say, like, 
flexor retinaculum and flexor carpi radialis, uh, brevis and longus and yeah. lots of Latin. Yeah. Um, I'm totally, totally in. I, I had to take yesterday off because I was sick and I needed to get a COVID test and I was so bummed to not be there. Yeah, right. Well, I'm stoked for you. That's uh, it's really exciting, exciting stuff. Yeah, it's cool. Um, you know what else is really exciting? I came across, we'll keep this short because um, obviously this is already such a, a dense episode, but um, I thought this would be really fun. Uh, are you familiar with the Mile High Club? Yes, where you have sex in the bathroom of an airplane when it's in the air. I mean, I don't think it has to be the bathroom. It's just having sex on a plane. Oh, in the air. Yeah, in the air. Yeah. Um, with a steward or stewardess? No, no, no. <laughs> with, with a pilot? Also, I don't think steward or stewardess is the word. What is it? Flight attendant. Oh. I feel Ooh, like... Steward I mean, and stewardess is out? Flight attendant is in because it's it's... Gender non-specific. Let's look it up. Uh, the terms stewardess and flight attendant describe the same basic job. Uh, stewardess, however, is an outdated term that has been replaced by flight attendant on all airlines. Pardon me, flight attendant friends. Yeah. Steward. I am the steward of the airplane. I just feel like it's... While it may have been politically correct to call a flight attendant an air hostess or stewardess 60 years ago, <laughs> doing so today is frowned upon. The proper term preferred by all flight crew is flight attendant, or even better, crew cabin. Like, cabin mas- crew. like massage therapist and masseuse. Yeah. We can't say that. You know what else is really specific about massage therapy? The way we refer to the thing that you lay on when you go in for a massage. The bed? No. It's a table. Ah, the t- ah yes. Yes, yes, yes. Right? This makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And if I were to tell you to, uh, I would tell you to undress to your level of comfort. Yes. I wouldn't say get, take your clothes off. We talked about this on the yeah. show. Oh, did we already? I think, I think we did, okay. yeah. Because I knew we talked about it personally. But we did. Yeah. There's all kinds maybe, of things. Maybe it wasn't on the show. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, uh, well, anyway, Mile High Club, banging on a plane in the air. Sure. Are you familiar with the Six Feet Under Club? No, and I'm afraid. <laughs> this is so fascinating. I don't remember where this came up, but I heard about this recently, and I, I took a note to bring it up on the podcast. I have this article from uh, HuckMag.com. There's like a, they, you know what? I don't know what it is, but anyway, um, there's <laughs> a there's an art and culture section in this magazine, and uh, this is the title of the, art, the article: Six the Six Feet Under Club, an art project burying kinky couples alive. So, um, Austrian art collective Monochrome offers a unique opportunity for participants to participants to experience the the warping of public and private space, having sex in a coffin while strangers watch you via webcam. Um, you can hear the whirring of a drill as the last cracks of light are stifled. There's a pause followed by the scratchy sound of dirt spilling above the wooden board just inches from your face, then silence. You would be forgiven for imagining this to be a scene from a horror film, but the man standing above your coffin, shovel in hand, is Jonas, uh, sorry, Johannes Gresferdner, Gresferdner, founder of the Austrian art collective Monochrome, to whom you have just signed away full consent. This is the Six Feet Under Club, an art installation where couples volunteer to be buried in a casket beneath the ground, 
along with a webcam that projects the scene for onlookers in unflattering night vision. The intention is to keep the intimacy of a sexual moment intact while moving it from the private to the public. Quote, we like the, this idea of people doing something very communal, waiting outside for some people down here having sex, and breaking the bound, boundary between the public sphere with the social con, conventions and what happens in your bedroom, says Gresferdner. God, what a name. Uh, quote, your bedroom becomes a coffin with people looking on. The idea can be traced back to 2005 when Gresferdner was reading piles of Victoria, Victorian Gothic literature. Quote, one very dominant plot line that kept emerging was people being buried alive. But many, particularly Edgar Allan Poe, were only writing it because the newspapers demanded it. Most of the tabloids of that time were really just reporting urban legends as fact. As he read on, Gresferdner began, began to see that the, quote, primordial fear of being buried alive had turned into a 19th century, quote, media craze. For an art group that is quite hands-on with primordial fear, the next step was obvious. Bury people alive voluntarily and see what the reaction would be. The first burial occurred in a backyard in Los Angeles, with participants given about 20 minutes of solitude before being dug up and presented with a certificate. But in 2010, at the collective's annual conference about sex and technology called Ars Electronica, Gresferdner decided to upgrade the performance, transitioning from solo burials, which are an experiment in fear, to dealing with, quote, specific kinks that people have. He fondly remembers the very first participants a lesbian couple who wanted to bring a giant strap on with them. Quote, they kind of debated how they could fit it in there. I told them they had to find a position that they would be comfortable in for 15 to 20 minutes because, you know, it's a coffin. It's kind of small. Today, the participants range from businessmen to goths. Though Gresferdner finds it fascinating that the latter almost never want to be buried alone. Once in San Francisco, a couple walked past on their way to dinner when they saw what was going on, they ran home only to return dressed as a nurse and a priest. Whoa. The presence of a camera adds a sense of exhibitionism that couples enjoy, but it's optional. About two-thirds say yes. And Gresferdner admits that you can't actually see that much. Nevertheless, when participants find themselves in the most intimate space imaginable, performing some of the most intimate acts possible, condoms are essential. Quote, it might get icky, Gresferdner says. We want people to clean up their mess down there. Though competition for time slots can be fierce, Gresferdner notes that there has been no justification for the damage waivers just yet. Only one man has uh, had a last-minute change of mind, reacting to the lid being put down so violently pushing it back up and injuring Gresferdner in the process. Uh. So, he explains, chuckling, the only bad thing that nearly happened was me breaking my jaw. Now, of course, this, was, uh, this article was written... Um, well, I don't know when this was written. Um, no date on it. There's no date there. Uh, <laughs> oh no, this was March 31st, 2016. So like, I don't know, COVID might be, might have, um, changed the whole six feet under club thing. Yeah. But, um, I, isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating. And I feel just as perplexed by the people who would participate in that as I do by the people who can't look at cadaver photos up on the thing. So you Isn't wouldn't do this? 100% I would never, ever 
be buried alive. Really? If I Why? Have no choice. Does that is that a is that does that elicit fear in you like right away? Um, is it what is it claustrophobia? The, the just the lack of control or if I'm going to be completely honest and take this somewhere a little bit different, um, I had a lot of nightmares after we buried my dad. Oh wow! Of of him being still alive when we buried him. Whoa! Yeah. And so that was a recurring nightmare that I had for a couple of weeks after he died. Holy fuck, you never yeah. told me that. Yeah, I just never really recovered from it. The thing just kind yeah. of makes me feel weird. But I can rationalize it. I 100%. So then my podcast, Morbid Podcast, the podcast that I listen to about all this, they did a thing on people who have been bar- are historically buried alive. It's definitely happened before. But again, according to this article... A lot of that, a lot of that sens- sensationalization of it's just media. Yeah, it's just media back in the day, kind of taking That's urban myth and blowing it up. Sort of comforting. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just know that. Also, my dad was buried without a coffin, so I also know he would, he could not have woken up in a coffin because there would be no. He would just there would be no air. Yeah, yeah. He was also dead as fuck. <laughs> Are you sure though? Yeah, he was pretty dead. Because he he needed to be he didn't want to be involved, so he had to bury yeah. him excessively quickly. Yeah, right. Are you yeah. sure? Yeah, yeah. You're hundred percent sure. He also I would spent say there the was night- an, an, a several people, professional people that are were hundred percent sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. great. So somewhere in the last hundred years, the technology has advanced to the point where we can truly tell that people are dead when they're dead. Because there was a time before like in the news, well, in the history. In before times, you know, your heart your heart could have stopped, but your brain well no, sorry, your your, your bra- brain could stop, but your yeah, heart Yeah, but your heart's still going. Okay. All right, I'll buy it. But it's still not I'm not joining that club. Wow. No matter what I would you do say. it. I would do it. I would do it pretty fucking quickly. Um I, I love I love the idea of it. That is so scary. Does it, he cover you with dirt? Like yeah. six feet of dirt? Um, no, it doesn't look like from the p- pictures that I'm looking at. It doesn't. It doesn't look like you're actually that deep. I do it in a tomb. But you are in a coffin <laughs> that's fucking drilled shut. Pretty. And his jaw got broken because someone smashed yeah, the almost, cover back yeah, up in his face. Broke his jaw, oh yeah. my god, that would be me. Yeah. Listeners, would you join the Six Feet Under Club? The coffin is a reminder of the social norm and exclusive pair bonding till death do us part. Oh, I like that. Pretty that good. ties it up with a nice bow. Isn't that nice? Gives yeah. it a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Um, maybe this is... Am I going with this? I thought I had it. Maybe this is not the... Uh, the, the right... Is there anything else you wanted to say about that? No, no. I, no, no. I just thought it was really interesting. Um, just cause we're talking about <coughs> history, I saw there was an NPR uh, article, um, called Dan Savage looks at what has changed in the 30 years he's been giving sex advice. Mm. Would you like to hear that? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, it's been 30 years since Dan Savage started his column Savage Love. I'm, my nose is making noise. Um, so he says, uh, for one, there, there's the way he received questions from readers. He got letters in the mail. 
right? He says, I got to look at people's handwriting, which was always really interesting and revealing. Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, if somebody wrote me on a legal pad with a fountain pen in very neat script and then claimed to be a 15-year-old girl, I knew that there that was a lawyer out there fantasizing about whatever they were describing. Mm. Uh, he's talked about what he's been wrong about over the years, how writing has changed and why he thinks gay people give better advice than straight people. Here are some experts. So uh, excerpts. So it is a recording. But uh, but he he was asked in those early days how unusual was it for any advice columnist to thoughtfully answer questions about things like kink and non monogamy. It's a hard word to say with a stuffed up nose. Non monogamy and other aspects of love and sex that might be seen as fringe. He says it was really unusual. What distinguished my column? Besides that, I'm pretty pro what works for the couple. And if that's monogamy, I'm pro. And if it's non-monogamy, I'm pro that. Is that I let people use the language they actually use when they talk about sex with their friends in my column in print, which is very rare. You know, 30 years ago, everyone used this kind of Sanskrit, separate, distinct, archaic language when they talked about sex or relationships. And I let the word they actually used be in print. That's pretty cool. Mm. Um... When you started the column, people couldn't easily look up information online, and now everything is Googleable. Have uh, how have search engines changed the kinds of questions you get? Uh, he says search engines made my job harder because I used to get a lot of how-to questions or what is. People would hear about something or overhear something, and they wouldn't have a place to go where they could look that up mm. very easily, and they'd ask me. And those columns were easy to write. What is this particular sex toy? Well, now that particular sex toy has its own Wikipedia page, as does almost any sex act that you could think of, which means all my questions are situational ethics. Yeah. I did this. They did that. Who's right? Who's wrong? What do we do with all these hurt feelings? How do we get past the, this? Those questions are a lot answer, hard, harder to answer. It's much more of a, of a high wire act. The questioner asks, what would you say is the biggest thing you've changed your mind about? in the 30 years you've been writing the column. And he says, oh my God, so many things. I used to be a male bisexuality skeptic, and now I'm a believer in male bisexuality. Huh, interesting. I was dubious about asexuality when that first began to be really kind of publicly addressed and discussed. And now, you know, I get it. Asexuality is a sexual orientation and a valid one and an important one for people to talk about so that people who are asexual don't feel like they're broken so they can name it and know who they are. Hmm. Questioner interviewer asks, uh, does having been wrong about things like bisexual men or asexuality make you fear that you might be putting bad information out about something else into the world right now? And he says, oh, sure. I think anybody who writes for a living, it's a constant process. And you don't judge anybody who writes a weekly column or a daily column or blogs by what they wrote 20 years ago. You have to look at what they continue to write and how their thinking has evolved and changed. One of the kind of perverse dynamics of, I don't want to call it cancel culture or the internet or Twitter now, is there's a lot of people yelling, listen, do better. And then people listen and do better. And then people just keep yelling at you for what you said yeah. before you listened and began to try to do better. Yeah. It seems to me if you want to bring people along, you've got to give them credit where you've seen growth or change. And there's a great example of that in the marriage equality movement. You know, we don't yell at people who used to not support marriage equality for not supporting it soon enough, being wrong at the outset, like Obama in 2007. We're grateful for this, his evolution, and that he came around. We're still not scolding him for where he was when he first ran for president. 
And then he's asked about uh, how he feels about this anniversary of 30 years. Did you think you'd be doing this for 30 years? And he says, I didn't think I'd be doing it for six months. <laughs> when the column started, it was a joke. I was a gay guy. It was 1990 when we started talking about the column. And gay people didn't give sex advice to straight people. And so the joke was I was going to treat straight people with the same contempt that straight advice columnists had always treated gay people <laughs> who wrote them letters. But straight people have never been treated like that in print before, and they loved it. It was fun for them, as opposed to traumatizing as it was for us. And the column took off. I started getting real questions, real letters. I think what my readers get, and a lot of straight people sort of intuitively get, is that your gay friends know a little bit more about sex than you do. And maybe are a little better at it than you are. And that's not because we're magic, although we are magic. It's something else. Gay people have to communicate about sex. Straight people get to consent and stop talking about what happens next mm -hmm. or what they want. And when two people of the same sex go to bed, they get to yes, they get to consent, and they have a whole conversation about what's going to happen. Nothing makes you better at sex than communicating. Gay people have to communicate. Straight people can avoid communication and often do because sex is difficult to talk about. You can't be gay if you can't talk about difficult sexual issues, you know. You can't come out to your family without confronting a difficult sexual issue. Mm. It makes it easier for us to have these conversations with our partners, and I think straight people have always gotten that. That's why it's such a cliche for straight people to go to their gay friends with their sex problems or their sex questions. And my column just grabbed that out, like, out of, like, everyone's high school and college relationships, and I got a 30-year institution out of it. Mm. I love that. It reminds me of my friend Yip, uh, who's gay. And, you know, when we first met, we were so young. And I, he was, he was like the person that I would talk to about sex. So, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. That was great. That was cool, huh? Speaking of um, tough questions, uh, we got a brain boner. Okay. And it actually came in in response to our, our conversation with Carrie Cohen. So I'm going to read this for you. And, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on, on this. Um, hello, beautiful Bridie and Jeremy. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time from your busy schedules to read this email. Secondly, I want to thank you for your honest conversation with Carrie Cohen in last week's episode. It was a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, I found it to be in good timing. I had never considered myself as codependent because I always thought of myself as fiercely independent. Turns out, maybe I'm not as much as I thought. Jeremy's question, is it better to do self-work in a difficult relationship or separate and do it individually, was like a lightning bolt to my spine. I have been with my partner for about two and a half years, and over the last six to eight months, our relationship has had some really difficult moments. Our relationship stress has particularly intensified over the past couple of months while I'm trying to finish school, and I keep asking myself, is it worth it to stay in this relationship? So my question, if you have an answer, or perhaps a guest who can address this in the future, if I am struggling in a relationship, how do I decide if something is worth continuing with? And if I decide to stay, how do I have this conversation with them? And if I decide to leave, how do I do so in a compassionate, loving, and honest way? I'm really struggling here, so any insight would be greatly appreciated. Many, many thanks. Wow. That is a question I've asked myself in almost every relationship I've ever been in at some point. And I've sought advice. I've asked the same question to other people. 
and or at least one other person. And the response that I got was, you know, if you're even asking the question, that's a a, a bit of a red flag. But I didn't, I didn't, it didn't resonate with me because I've asked that question in every one of my relationships. Yeah. And the other side of the coin is, you know, sometimes I worry that we have gotten the pendulum swung in the other direction so much that like we can say, you know, don't settle. But then you're not, you're not ever going to find a relationship where there's no problems. Yeah. So it becomes a question of, is this relationship? And I feel like I've heard like actual professional people say this, like maybe Esther Perel or one of the other relationship therapists we talked to, I talked about a lot, um, is that, sometimes it's okay that a relationship is good enough. Hmm. Um, you can't fix all the problems. And like, was it with a conversation with Carrie Cohen or was it a conversation with someone else where we were talking about like relationships are where you sort of work through your shit. Yeah. You can't do that by yourself. So if the things that are coming up in your relationship are coming up, the same ones that came up from the previous relationship or whatever. It's like, you're the common denominator. Mm, Are you going to drop this relationship and try it again with someone else without fixing the problem? Or are you going to try to work through it with this person? And I don't have a really good, I don't think there's any way to really answer. Like, is there a way to look into the future and know whether all the hard work that you're putting in is going to be worth it? There's no way to know. (laughs) But, I do think that there are some flags that can be looked at like, is your partner receptive to you expressing your needs? Will they hear them without getting, can they hear them without getting defensive? If they can't, is that a conversation that you can have? And that might require a third party, a neutral party, a therapist or a, or a counselor, someone who can be there to de- to, to help things not get, not escalate and over overflow, but like it's a it's a really great question, and I bet I'm not the only one who's asked it in most relationships. Mm-hmm. Like one thing that I really have to remember when times are hard in my relationship, and I'm not good at this, is is I have to really consciously go and think about all the positive things in the relationship because when things are not good. My mentality is it's always been this way mm-hmm. and it's always going to be this way. And that's, there's we no al- way out We of always it. remember the hard things. We never remember the good. No, definitely. The, and and the, that's just the, the way our evolutional yeah. brain works. We yeah. focus on the negative because the negative things might kill you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a method of like keeping a record of, of how your days go and are there more positive days than negative days or is this the relation? I know you're, you're in a really intense program or a period in your schooling and which I totally understand. Like I don't have any existing relationships outside of school right now to really like, you know, if you or if Todd came to me and were like, I need more from you. I'd be like, I'm busy. I don't have it. Yeah. But also, I know sometimes really intensive programs, if your partner's not in one as well, you're growing and you're evolving and you're changing and you're being stimulated and 
and all that. And if you're not seeing that at the same rate with your partner, that's difficult, but it's, you know, it's not their fault that they're not in a program as well. And for them, sometimes it can be scary to see the change and to feel like, even if it's subconscious to feel like out of control, like, like there's something out of your, outside of your control and that, you know, witnessing this growth in the person that you love and care about is can be an intense scary thing because it feels like perhaps they're growing away away from you or growing outgrowing without you, you outgrowing you yeah. yeah 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 that and and you know when you're in an in intense it's it's really hard to sort out what's what and like can you have a sit down car i also i don't know how to respond to this or or think about this concept of like you know, if you're thinking this, do I stay or do I go? At what point do you tell your partner that you're having those thoughts? Because if you tell them you're having those thoughts and you don't have any sort of conclusive decision yet, then there you're going to trigger a whole thing in them, mm-hmm. fear in them. But also the other side of that is, Maybe it's, it's, maybe it doesn't need to come to that exactly, but, but just towing up to that line, being like, I really need us to be able to figure this problem out that we're having because I can't do this anymore. Yeah. That, you know, especially if there's barriers to being able to communicate and like, you know, you try to express your needs and it's not received and. There has to be, I think, at some point, a conversation that is just like, I need to talk to you about our relationship because yeah. I'm struggling. Yeah. Um, and then it's up to you. I mean, I'm, I've always been the one, and I've had to dial it back, that in conflict is like, that's it. I can't do this anymore. Mm. I'm out. And then I've become known in the relationship as the person who's got one foot out the door at all times, who's yeah. not committed. Yeah. And that's a personality trait of mine. So I got to be, I know I personally have to be very wary of saying to a partner, I'm kind of thinking this might mm. not be working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on this? It's complicated. I, I mean, I think, I think you just kind of, you, you hit the nail on the head. And to the question of, you know, if I do decide to leave, how do I do so in a compassionate, loving and honest way? It's, I think that that's a really hard place to be and a hard thing to do. But the best way to approach that is to really reflect and consider if the table was turned and you were having someone do this to you, you know, explaining to you that they wanted out, how would you want them to do it? How would you want them to do it? Like how would you want to receive that news and to receive that conversation and whatever the answer is to that, that's the way that you do it in yeah. a loving and compassionate way because, um, do unto others as you would have, they would have exactly. them do unto you, you know, the golden rule. That's it. But also like, I think that that's a great point. And I just want to say like, you don't do it in the heat of the argument. No, you don't do it on the birthday. Don't do it on Christmas. You have to be, don't do it on Halloween. Too spooky. I would I would try if you can to be as a hundred percent sure as you can and yeah. to be 
as available as I mean, unless this person is abusing you, of course. Yeah. That's a completely different situation. But if you could be there and you can be and you can hold the space for whatever emotions they might bring up, whatever emotions there might be, but still be connected to your purpose. You want to, mm. you know, because I, I think it's really hard when I feel like I've, maybe I've only imagined myself in the situation where I'm breaking up with someone and they get, they're like, no, but blah. And then, you know, I cry and then we're still together. Do you know what I mean? So I think you, my, my advice, even though it's easier to give advice than to take your own advice, is to just like stay, stay grounded in yeah. that conversation. Yeah. Someone has to be, in the words of Cat Nance, the settled body. Yeah. And if, if it's your decision, it's got to be you. You got to, yeah. Or you gotta at be, least you got to be ready to be. You got to be ready yeah. for that. Yeah. So uh, that's compassion. I'm, I, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to out this person's name because they didn't say whether we could or couldn't. But uh, to Gilan there, who sent that question, I hope that gives some sort of answer. Um, and if you have a question that you want to throw our way, a brain boner of sorts, or any kind of uh, comment, uh, again, termionpodcast.gmail.com. You can send it our way. We love getting letters from you, and uh, of course, love reading them on the show. Um, and yeah, I'm again, hope you uh, enjoyed this week's episode. It's been a really, whew, just been a doozy of a fucking epi. We've got some great guests lately. Yeah, we, yeah, we really, really have. Um, hope you enjoyed that, folks. We love you, each and every one of you, especially our patrons. Patreon.com slash turn me on if you want to watch our foreplay slash um, aftercare segments. Um, and um, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating or review. Hit follow on Spotify. Um, and other than that, looking forward to hanging out with all y'all next week. Yeah, so. and stay tuned next week because I got to give you a little uh, save the date for our next Human Connection Through Touch Ooh, workshop, fun. which uh, we promised as a gift, a free gift, to all of our patrons who supported us over our uh, summer hiatus. And uh, and so we'll announce that date next week. And of course, it's open to everybody. So not just for patrons, but yeah. patrons are just going to get a special promo code. So yeah, never too late to join our Patreon. Uh, love you, folks. Love you, Brad. And uh, that is it for this week. Until next week, go touch yourself. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns.